Our God and Father, we thank you so much, Lord, uh, just for the time that we can come together, Lord, that we can uh, gather together to praise you and to pray to you, and now, Lord, to open your word. And Father, we just pray as we do that, as we look to your word, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear and to understand what it is that you would say to us through this, uh, uh, through your, your scriptures here, Lord. Uh, we know we are in desperate need for your help, Lord, uh, so we just pray that you would do that work that only you can do in our hearts so that we might uh, leave here a people who love you more and to see your grace and your mercy and your love more uh, as the story will show us, Lord. So be with us and bless our time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll go ahead and have a seat. Well, you know, we've, uh, I'm sure it goes without saying that we have all been offended at some point in our life, probably many times, and oftentimes the most difficult or the hardest offenses to endure, to deal with, are when they come by those who are closest to us, perhaps a, a family member, a parent, a child, or even a spouse, and though reconciliation uh, is possible and occurs, I, I would say probably most of the time. Um, when it is in those situations, reconciliation can be uh, difficult. Uh, it can be f- painful, uh, the process to bring it about. Um, in this story, as, as we go through it, I think, uh, as you'll see, there is just a beautiful account of reconciliation that occurs um, in, 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 that, in terms uh, similar to that. Uh, when the offense comes, uh, in such a close relationship, if you will, um, this difficult but yet beautiful act of reconciliation. I think that's what you'll see as we move through the story. So uh, before we start talking about Hosea and what we see here, I, I think it would help or, or at least give us a, a hand here if we consider a couple points on the historical contextual background of the story. It's going to help us understand the significance of what's unfolding before us as we, as we look at Hosea and, and these few chapters here. Uh, at the time when Hosea writes, Israel is a divided kingdom. There We have Israel in the north and Judah to the south. And although at times he does address Judah in his book, Hosea primarily speaks to and prophesies to the northern kingdom of Israel. And as he does this, it's in the final period of time before they are going to be conquered by the Assyrians. And at the time of his writing, Israel as a people here, the kingdom, and as a, as a culture, as a society, if you will, they're, they're really steeped in gross immorality and idolatry. And I'm going to read another, I know it's a little long, I just read a long section of scripture, but I'm going to read a handful of verses to you too, because I think it'll, it'll help give you the, or help us to understand the, the culture, the time, what's going on, the atmosphere, if you will, uh, when Hosea speaks to the people here. And that's in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 7 through 18. And if you look there, uh, right before there in, verses six, in verse 6, it actually tells us this, this was why, well, it's going to tell us why, but this is right before Assyria conquers and takes into exile the people of Israel. And this is what it says. This is how it describes the, uh, the atmosphere of the is- culture in Israel at the time. In 2 Kings 17, 7, it says, and this occurred, this conquering by the Assyrians and the exile that was going to happen, it says, this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt, 
from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs of the kings of Israel, and the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent you by my servants the prophets. But they would not listen. They were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations who were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves and made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah. And so we, we get this understanding, we see this, and we see that the, the culture, I guess, the moment into which uh, Hosea is, is going to speak and that we're going to see the story unfold is, is one where the people are, again, they're just they're steeped in this gross immorality and idolatry. They're, they're far from God, we might say. And as we look at this, you know, what we see is, you know, as God threatens judgment for sin, as he does so often and as he will do here in Hosea, as God threatens judgment for sin, he also offers hope of healing and restoration. And we're going to see that as the story unfolds here in Hosea. God is going to remember his covenant with his people. Uh, in one commentary, it made a, a great point on this, actually. It said that five times in the flow of the book that this reconciliation is, is intimated. Three of those come in these first three chapters. And that what that does is that tells us, that conveys that the overall intent of the book is the persistent presence of Yahweh's love despite his people's endemic waywardness. You know, the, the overall uh, intent of the book, he says again, it's the persistent presence of God's love despite his people's waywardness. And this really expresses to us, if you will, the incomprehensible love of God toward his people, a wayward and undeserving people at that. And it's, it's into these times and these circumstances in which God speaks by the prophet Hosea, and the way he does so is important for us to take a moment and consider. Um, you know, the scriptures, as we look through the scriptures, uh, in all, you know, the scriptures use different styles of writing, different literary techniques uh, to vividly portray spiritual truths to us. There's, you know, if you read through your Bible, you, you find narrative, you find stories, historical narratives in there. There's poetry, there are letters to individuals and churches. Um, we encounter symbolism, there's types and there's figures, there's metaphors, there's 
Uh, all of these different types of writing and, and, and styles of writing and techniques in order to portray or to convey to us spiritual truths. And one way in which sp- scripture does this is through the use of a parable. And I would imagine that most of us know what a parable is, but just for the sake of, uh, in case there's not, uh, a simple definition of a parable is a story that would take something from our world, something that we are, uh, that we would understand, something that we're used to, something that we would understand through a common everyday experience, and it uses this to, exper- to express a greater spiritual reality. And if we've been a Christians for any amount of time, we probably are familiar with this, as Jesus, of course, taught through parables. You can think of, for example, the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, where Jesus is, you know, sower went out to sow, and he sowed seed on different types of, uh, of ground, and he goes on to explain that what it is is the, the seed is the word of God, and these are the different conditions in which it lands, and some it uh, doesn't produce a, well, three of the four, it doesn't produce a, a harvest, but, but one it does, you know, and so it's a, it's a point that you take something that we recognize, something that we're used to, and, and you use that common everyday experience to convey a greater truth. Now, I think Hosea, as we look at it, that's the way we need to understand Hosea's message. However, in Hosea, as we look at it, uh, I think it would be best if we understand it as a, a, what we could call maybe a living parable here. Here in, in, in Hosea, in chapter 1 through 3, it's a parable, that's, it's a story, that, it's something that we're, that from our comment, it's a, a story that we can, we can understand and relate to, you know, to an extent, but it's real. It's comprised of real characters. It's the real experience of a man and his wife that are going to point us to a greater uh, spiritual reality there. And, and Hosea does use, as he goes through his book, if you were to read through the whole letter of Hosea, he uses different parables to illustrate the relationship between God and his people. But the most prominent and the most powerful picture of this relationship, if you will, is found, which is found not only here, but really throughout the scriptures, is that of marriage. And so, you know, if we, if we truly understand the principles and the importance of biblical marriage, uh, you know, when we, when we truly understand what marriage is, and we'll talk about this a little bit as we go along, but if we really understand the, 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 the importance of biblical marriage, then we see not only how powerful of an example that this is, but we'll also come to appreciate the gravity of the offense that's going to take place in the story here. Uh, not only in the parable concerning uh, Hosea and his wife, uh, but also in this outworking of the relationship between God and his people. Okay, and we'll see that as we go. So if we look at Hosea as a living parable then, again, it requires that we, that we look at it and we understand that these characters are real people, that their experiences within the story are real, but yet they're pointing us to this greater spiritual reality. They're teaching us greater spiritual truths, leading us ultimately, again, to this incomprehensible love of God in Jesus Christ. Uh, which I think we'll see. So as, as we go through the story here, as we uh, watch it unfold, if you will, before us, we're going to look at it under three points, and we'll kind of go through it three, three times, I suppose, at least some points here. We'll skip over a lot, as I said, but we're going to look at these three points. And, and the first, we, we're going to look at it, and we're going to see, uh, if you will, a picture of the prophet. And we'll spend most of our time here. We're going to look at the story, and we'll see you know, how this relationship between 
Hosea and Gomer unfolds here, and we'll spend most of our time there, and I'm sure to many of you uh, it will become clear how this relates to God and his people as we're going through it. But then after that, we want to look at it, and we're going to see how this gives us a picture of the people of Israel then, and then how it relates to us as well. What is this pointing to us, uh, the reality concerning ourselves? What does it teach us about God, and then what does it teach us about ourselves? And then finally, at the end, we'll, we'll go back and we'll look at it in light of how God deals with his people. And as we do this, again, I think we're, we're really, the main point of the whole story as a whole is we're led to this greater understanding of the promise of the hope in salvation that God demonstrates and accomplishes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think that'll become clear as we go along. So if you would, you, we're going to, like I said, we're going to skip through it and you can turn back and forth between these uh, Verses, you know, in the three chapters, if you'd like, and follow along that way. So, to begin, let's start just by looking, getting this picture of the prophet of Hosea and Gomer and their family there, and the actual story and what takes place in his life. I think it's important that we might start at least by mentioning that Hosea, for all intents and purposes, what we know, Hosea is a godly man. And I think we can see that and we can understand that most clearly uh, in his faithfulness and obedience to God as God calls him to do something and to experience something that is going to be utterly offensive. And we'll talk a bit about that. In fact, so offensive is what happens here. And if you don't find it too offensive, I'm, I'm going to address that because there's a, I think there's, that's part of our culture and we'll, we'll get to that. But so offensive is what occurs here in Hosea, that it really makes him somewhat unique to a, a point, I think, uh, among the biblical writers or characters in the Bible. And we, we do find many instances throughout the Bible of people being called to experience difficult, to endure difficult circumstances. Um, we could think of Abraham, I'll talk about that in a moment, Job, uh, as well as another one that experiences some very difficult uh, you know, experience in his life. However, Hosea, I think he is certainly unique in what he is called to, uh, to do and experience here, uh, as we'll talk about in his life. Uh, maybe one of the, I think, a close comparison um, that we can at least consider for a moment just to make the point in one being called to do something that's, that's unique, that's difficult, that's hard, um, is really, uh, apart from, the, apart from uh, of course, the experience of Christ and his work of salvation and all that he did, but maybe, maybe one of the closest comparisons would be that of Abraham as he's called to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice in Genesis 22. You know, if you're familiar with the story, and I'll just explain it really briefly in case you're not, in Genesis 22 there, Abraham, he's, he has his son Isaac, his only son, um, well, the son of the promise that God has, uh, he, he waited, they waited, uh, I believe, a quarter of a century to have this child. God had promised him and Sarah a child, and he has the child finally, and at the time in Genesis 22, some think he, Isaac is maybe a teenager, some think he's maybe a, a young man, but some time has passed. And Abraham realizes that all of the promises that God has made concerning him and the people and the, the nation, all of these things, are, are they're bound up in Isaac. And he loves Isaac, and in fact it says that. And there in Genesis 22, God calls to Abraham one day and he says, Abraham, and Abraham says, yes, Lord, here I am. And he says, take your son Isaac, the son that you love, and offer him as a sacrifice to me on the mountain that I'll show you. 
And the thing is, if you go back there and read, and we can speculate all we want, but the following verse says, so Abraham rose up in the morning, he gathered the supplies, and he went. And, you know, we see, uh, and there's a lot to that story, of course, that's a unique and very important story, but just to make the point here is that what we see there in, 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 in Abraham, and as we'll see here in Hosea, what we should appreciate is that we see a level of faith and obedience in these stories that's absolutely amazing. You know, God calls this man or these men into something of extreme difficulty, and they go. There's no reason in the scripture in either of these stories that we would assume any hesitation or any questioning of God's will. With Abraham, he says, Abraham, take the son that you love, take him and go offer him as a sacrifice to me. And Abraham doesn't argue or try to negotiate. He simply gets up and follows. The God certainly must have struggled with some things. I mean, we could, we could think. Hosea, as we see what he's called to, he simply does. It's a level of faith and obedience that is just, it's, it's amazing, you know, in the lives of these people. And it, it raises the point, I think, to us, or it should raise the point to us, that obedience is a hallmark of the one who has truly experienced the grace of God. Uh, obedience is a hallmark to one. If we have truly experienced the grace of God, uh, seeing all that he has done on our behalf, obedience uh, should be the byproduct, I, I suppose we could say, of that. Obedience should be present in the life of the believer. And of course, we fail many times every day. We fall short, we sin, but when we do, we repent and we're restored. We, we understand, as is, is written in 1 John 1 9, if we confess our sins, then he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from, from unrighteousness. So when we fall short, we repent and we turn back to the Lord and we're restored. However, that ongoing work of sanctification, that, that becoming more Christ-like and, and more holy and set apart from the Lord that's uh, shown really through obedience to the Lord in, in, in many ways, that should be present, that should be a hallmark in the life of the believer. And I'll bring this up probably a few more times as we, we go along. So then what is it that God calls Hosea to do? Well, if you look at your Bible there in chapter 1, verse 2, God calls to Hosea and he says, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. God calls the prophet to marry, to take to yourself. That's what that means. God calls him, take to yourself, go marry a woman who would be unfaithful to the covenant vows of marriage. Now, the word there is translated also as harlotry or even calling her a promiscuous woman. And it might not be necessary to understand this in terms that she is or necessarily even becomes a, a, a prostitute. Some would hold that view. Um, rather, I think the emphasis here is that she is unfaithful in the mar- in the, to the covenant of marriage. That's, that's the primary point. Go and take to yourself a woman, go take a wife, who is going to be unfaithful to the covenant of, of marriage here. And again, this is, uh, it's extremely offensive. It should be extremely offensive. So offensive is this that it's caused some very wonderful and godly Christians along the way to take the view that of Hosea's life and of this experience that he, that he goes through, this call by the Lord, to not have actually happened, that this must be some sort of uh, just a story, just another parable. It didn't really happen. It was just making the point like other parables possibly were doing. But the problem with that, the problem with that is that there's nothing 
in the scriptures themselves to that point to that type of interpretation. Never is there anything intimated in scripture that this is simply a story or a parable. Everything points to this being a real life person in a real life experience. And you see, if we if we take that view or that approach with Hosea that, oh, it couldn't have, it's so offensive it just couldn't happen, the danger in that is that what keeps us from doing that with other scriptures? You know, when, when we come across a scripture that we don't understand or from some human maybe perspective that that's, it's too in, offensive, that it's too unrealistic, that it's too impossible, uh, that we would do the same exact thing and say, oh, well, this can't be real. This can't be real people or a real experience and we can write it off as a story. Think of Jonah, you know. Uh, we could say, oh, well, there's no possibility that he could have really been inside the, the fish, whatever it was. Um, think of the miracles of Jesus. You know, they defy our reality here. Um, the resurrection, you know, if we take this approach and say, oh, well, I don't understand and I'm too offended by this and this doesn't make sense to me, so it can't be real. What keep, the danger is what keeps us from doing that in other Places. So again, it's, it's best that we take the scriptures as they are, that these are, uh, you know, it's a, again what I'd call, I suppose, a living parable. It's real life, it's real people, and, and their life here, their experience is being played out before the world in order to reveal to us, to show us a greater spiritual truth and reality. And, you know, kind of as a side note, I was thinking of, uh, as I was going back through this a little bit, is that just in speaking on that, you know, it's, it, this really highlights the importance of having pastors and teachers that are educated and trained to rightly interpret and explain scriptures. You know, we should be thankful as a church that our pastors and the ones who, who preach and teach regularly, um, uh, that they're, they're rightly trained and educated and prepared to interpret and to apply the, the scriptures to us. So, um, with that, I, I think it's uh, maybe appropriate, maybe even necessary, to take a moment and think about our time and our culture that we live in to address this offensiveness. As I keep saying, it's an offensive thing. It's an offensive um, experience here that's going on as Hosea is called to take a woman who's going to be unfaithful. Um, you, you can recall a, a moment ago, I read that portion of scripture there just to uh, make the point that when he's writing that the people hear that they are they're they're steeped in immorality and although not completely unique I think it's fair to say that we live in a time us now live in a time and in maybe a cultural moment that is to some extent unique or or maybe better said is unprecedented in the attempt to advance the acceptance of biblical immorality and we see that all over the place, right? Especially, of course, right now in our culture, at our time, we, we see this very heavily with the homosexuality and the transgender movement. Um, we see it with, uh, uh, you know, with abortion. Those are kind of some of the big topics that we see um, uh, concerning biblical immorality. But, this, but the acceptance, the advance in the acceptance of biblical immorality would include the acceptableness or the, you know, the acceptableness and the normalcy of unfaithfulness in marriage. And, you know, if you think about that, you know, we see this constantly. We see it constantly in our, in our entertainment. Uh, it's, it's all over TV and movies and music. It's, uh, it's just become a normal thing that it's okay. Um, we see it unfold in the big names of our culture, the celebrities that we see up there, that this one, you know, had a mistress. This one had a 
I don't know what you call it, a mister? Um, they had something, but you know, we see it all the time. Um, we experience it in, in various ways through even just through loved ones, friends, and family, and it's just become such a, a, a normal thing. And all the while, you know, as a culture, we seem to justify this with any number of reasons. You know, we'll, we'll see two people that are married and we'll give the excuses that, uh, well, they didn't, you know, provide my needs, they didn't uh, make me feel happy, whatever the case might be, and we'll justify this unfaithfulness by for any number of reasons. And we've really become, I think it's fair to say in our, in our culture at least, uh, culturally numb, maybe we could say, to the seriousness and the offensiveness of this issue. Because when we have a right view of marriage, a biblical view, and we'll talk a little bit more about this in a moment, when we, when we really understand the value and the meaning of marriage, well, then we can understand just how utterly offensive that this really is, uh, that God would call Hosea to take to yourself a wife that is going to be unfaithful to your covenant of marriage. Well, with this in mind, then let's, let's go through a couple points in the scriptures and just consider some of the details of the story and of this marriage experience between Hosea and Gomer as they unfold between us. Well, I don't think we have to start or assume that at the beginning that she was necessarily unfaithful. You know, it's not, and perhaps it's not like, um, like I mentioned, maybe she didn't, he didn't go and take to himself, he didn't go marry a, a prostitute, you know, maybe we don't have to necessarily assume that at the start of their relationship that she was necessarily unfaithful. Perhaps it started out well. Maybe at the beginning she was faithful and at some point turns to unfaithfulness and adultery. And though we're not really given a strict timeline here, um, this might be emphasized at least to some extent in the naming of the children. If you look there in, in verse 2 of chapter 1 of your Bible, you notice it says, she conceived and she bore him a son, right? So, he takes her as his wife. Excuse me. It says she conceived and she bore him a son. In verse 6, it says she conceived again and bore a daughter. In verse 8, it says she conceived and bore a son. You see, in the latter two, the wording is different. It's possibly it's indicating to us that Hosea is perhaps not the father as he was with the first. And the first is she bore him a son. And the latter two, it's she bore a daughter, she bore a son. And this, again, this might show a progression. Perhaps she started off well and progressed towards unfaithfulness. And, you know, think about the, uh, for a moment, the level of, again, the faith and obedience of Hosea here. You know, knowing in advance, right? Knowing in advance that he's marrying, uh, he's having, he's going to have this wife, he's going to have a spouse here, who would be unfaithful. And think of the, just consider, you know, Put yourself in his shoes, I suppose we could say. You know, think of the, the painful and the devastating implications of this, and yet, again, he obeys knowing this ahead of time. You know, he, he does what God calls him to do ahead of time. And, and, and again, just to come back to the point, obedience should be a hallmark in the life of the believer. You know, I think we can take the principle, at least, here and apply it to our lives. Um, and see how, how this might apply to us as well. Uh, we might not be called to a specific circumstance necessarily in our life, and I don't think God would call anybody. I think this was a unique point of time when God was making a point here 
through what was happening with Hosea, but, but we're all called to live a life of obedience. And we've learned a, a little bit about this in another uh, context, if you will, as we've been looking at Matthew and talking about persecution. You know, we're all called to live a life of obedience in light of the reality that persecution will come for believers in some sh- way, shape, or, or form. Um, that's, a, that's a definite, we're, we're told there. Paul tells us anyone who desires to be a, a Christian Whoever wants to be a godly person, you will suffer persecution. And, you know, though that might be different, um, again, the obedience is what is supposed to mark the life of a believer. And are we willing to obey no matter what God calls us to endure? That may be a question we can ask ourselves. Well, as the progression of unfaithfulness occurs here, uh, let's notice here that she, Gomer here, she pursues her lovers. It's not as though she was deceived, she wasn't allured into this adulterous relationship, but rather she went after it intentionally and purposefully. We see this in chapter 2, verse 5. If you look there at your Bible, it says, For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers. You know, in, in the book of James, in chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, it tells us there that, that sins, you know, when we're tempted and we, that this it's our own sinful desire that when we give it into produces sin and death. You know, it's not that she was deceived. She wasn't tricked into sin. The devil didn't make her do it. It was her giving into sinful desire and pursuing that which is forbidden to those created in the image of God and living under his lordship. It's, you know, she wasn't drawn into through some sort of trickery or deceivery into adulterous relationships. It says she, she pursued them, them herself. She says, I will go after my lovers. And, and, you know, this happens in light of the assumed goodness of the husband. Because remember that he's a godly man. And we can assume as a godly man, as he's portrayed here in, in the scriptures, we can assume that as a godly man, then he... He lives in a way that loves and supports and provides for his wife in a good and godly manner. So in light of the assumed goodness of, of the godly husband, she pursues these adulterous relationships. And so again, this comes from her own desire as she sees her adulterous lovers there as a source of satisfaction and pleasure. She saw them as providing her needs and fulfillment rather than finding these things in the husband and ultimately in God within the context of this intimate covenant marriage relationship. She says in verse 5 there, continuing chapter 2, verse 5, she says, I'll go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Now in chapter 2, we see a sort of legal process and an indictment that takes place here by the offended husband toward the unfaithful wife. In chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, it says, Plead with your mother, plead, for she's not my wife and I'm not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. And so we see this indictment coming, uh, coming out, of, uh, her situa- out of from her actions. It's uh, and in here, and it really it shows us two, two maybe three things here, as it as it unfolds. There's a plea for repentance. There's uh, the plea, plead with your mother, plead that she, for she's not my wife, I'm not her husband. That she put this away from her face. There's a plea that she would turn from her unfaithfulness and and her un- adulterous relationships and be restored 
in her marriage to Hosea. But then there's also that pronouncement of judgment. If she would not repent, then there would be these severe consequences. And really, in the, in the, as the story unfolds, I guess, there's this tension there throughout it that there's this promise of hope. There's promise of restoration, of healing, of renewal if she would repent, if she would turn away from, from the sinful relationships. But there's that warning of judgment if she would not. Now, finally, in, in chapter 3, as we watch the story again unfold, in chapter 3, we see God call Hosea to the redemption and restoration of the marriage. In spite of her unfaithfulness, the command is to go and to love the adulterous wife. In chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, it said this, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her with 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore belong to another man, so I will also be to you. Now this, this might even, really, it might even be more offensive than the first call. You know, the, at first it was, go and marry the woman, go and find this spouse that will be unfaithful. That's maybe one thing. Maybe a, a whole nother thing to say, now in light of what has transpired between the two of them, to say, now go and love her in light of all of those things. And that's interesting there if you, if you think about it, right? Because he says at the beginning, it's go and take a wife, you know, that would be unfaithful. And here he says, now go and love the adulterous woman and restore the relationship. And again here, to say it again, we see the faithfulness of Hosea, don't we? Because if you think about it for a moment, you think of all the, again, put yourself in his, <clears throat> in his shoes, if you will. Think of all the hurt, the devastation, even the shame that this must have caused him. And yet he loves her and he restores her to himself. And also, you know, Hosea, not only that, but Hosea, he has to pay a, a price to redeem her. In chapter 3, verse 2, it said, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and lethic of barley. And, and this really indicates the desperate situation that the wife has come to. Um, Hosea, he has to invest. He has to pay a price in order to restore her and bring about reconciliation. And you know, Hosea here, he would really have every right and be completely justified in divorcing her. Yet, as the godly person, he faithfully obeys God, regardless of any pain or frustration or any cost that it might, that it might cost him. And it's important, you know, I think, just to just to at least take note to understand that this whole situation is dependent upon his mercy toward her. The offender, the one who has offended, is at the mercy of the offended party. You know? So here they are. They've, they've been married. They've had these children. She's gone after you know, unfaithful, adulterous relationships. Hosea has gone and loved her and redeemed her. The story ends there. We're not really told how everything turns out. Um, did they walk off into the sunset? Did they live happily ever after? We're not really told. But that's really not the point of the story, right? It's a, it's a parable. It's pointing us to something greater. It's pointing us to a greater spiritual reality. So let's, 
look again through the story really quick and see the implications for Israel then and then even for us now. Throughout the scriptures, we see that marriage is ultimately a picture of the relationship between God and his people over and over uh, in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets. But in the Old Testament, we find marriage language being used in many places to describe God's relationship to Israel there. In the New Testament, we find the same concept describing Jesus and his church, the church being called the bride of Christ, of course. Paul, in Ephesians 5, 25 through 33, he he brings this all together really beautifully, and he makes it clear where he quotes from Genesis there, where it says that a man shall leave his mother and father, and the husband and the wife shall become one flesh there. He, He makes it clear saying that marriage ultimately serves as a picture of God and his people, God's covenant faithfulness, his sacrificial love for his people, and the people's faithful obedience and adoration of their God. In fact, Paul, he says that this is a mystery that's profound as this marriage relationship, uh, this joining of the husband and the wife, that it ultimately, it's a profound mystery that ultimately points to God and his church. And so if marriage is to depict this for the glory of God, we can see why really any undermining of the covenant of marriage in any way, that's why it's so utterly offensive. Because this marriage is to be a picture, it's supposed to be a living parable itself, if you will, of the relationship between God and his people, playing out for the glory of God before the world. This is why if if there's any undermining of that, that's why the unfaithfulness here, that's why it's, it's so offensive what is taking place here. You see, but the thing is, in Hosea, as this points us to a greater spiritual reality, in Hosea, the unfaithfulness on the part of Gomer is representative of the unfaithfulness of God's people as it's likened to spiritual adultery, as it is throughout the scriptures uh, altogether. Any form of idolatry, any form of going after or worshiping other gods is spiritual adultery. It's unfaithfulness in the face of God. Chapter 1, verse 2 again, it says, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. It's a picture of how the people had committed spiritual adultery by forsaking God for other gods. And over the course of time, the people progressively worsened in their unfaithfulness to the Lord, to where they are now at the point where God is going to bring judgment. Um, you, you can recall what we read in 2 Kings 17 there, where it, where it talks about just how, how deep, if you will, into their sin that they had gotten, uh, forsaking God and worshiping other gods there. Uh, and Doug Stewart, in his commentary, um, he makes a point here on the blessing and the curse that are because of their sin or in their relationship there. Um, in Hosea, he says in Hosea that the, he explains that the blessing portions, he says the blessing portions that are, uh, that are spoken of there are primary, primarily eschatological, that they'll take place later on in time, right? That the blessings are primarily eschatological, whereas the curses are more immediate. Well, what he says is there's no hint in Hosea that Israel, at this point, that they can escape from the wrath of God expressed in destruction in Israel. Yet there is the, the hope of restoration and healing. There's no escape from the judgment that is, that, that's going to come because they've gone so far in their sin. The people have committed great sin. They've ignored God's warning to repent. And now 
Though there is the promise of future restoration, they will suffer his judgment at the hand of the Assyrians there. Well, a couple of uh, points, a couple of details of the story here point us to, or they help us to see how the actions of Gomer point to this truth of the people. Well, just as the, she pursued her lovers, so also the people pursue other gods. The people of Israel, they're not tricked, they're not deceived into idolatry and false worship, but rather they pursue these on their own. They, they see the false gods as, a source of, as their source of pleasure and satisfaction, as their source of fulfillment and, and their provision and their security. They look to, to other things for that which only God could give them. You see this uh, throughout the book of Judges uh, in particular. You see how the judge would, if you're familiar with the book of Judges, you see the cycle and the people would turn away from God and they'd worship other gods and God would, and they'd get into you know, a desperate situation. God would save them and then they'd, you know, the judge would die and they'd turn back to their unfaithfulness again and they would continue. And it's not that they were being tricked or deceived. It was them going after their other gods, looking to other things for that which only God could give to them. And this happens in light of the goodness of God, just like Gomer and Hosea, just as her actions occurred in, under the assumed goodness of the godly man, this happens in light of the goodness of God toward them, his faithfulness to them throughout their history as a people. And we see that in chapter 2, verse 8 of Hosea. He says, And she did not know that it was I who gave her her grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. It was, it was God who was giving her those things. He says, and they, they went after, they pursued these other lovers, these other gods, thinking they were the source of their fulfillment and meaning and purpose and pleasure, but it was I who was providing those things that they used for other gods there. And we'll, we get a really a good picture at the end of Hosea in chapter 11, and we'll look at that when we, when we close here in a, in a few moments here. We, we find here also how this, uh, the same as in many of the scriptures, how this legal process, this indictment by the offended, uh, the offended party that we saw there, we see this in much of the scriptures, um, this indict, indictment, if you will, by the offended God toward the unfaithful people. We find this same tension throughout Hosea and throughout the prophets and much of the scriptures where there is this plea for repentance that would lead to restoration and this pronouncement of judgment uh, if they would not. You know, turn from your sin, turn back to God and be restored, and if not, there will be judgment. And just as Gomer found herself in a desperate situation, which was depicted there, portrayed in Hosea needing to pay a price to redeem her, the people find themselves also in such a, a desperate situation, utterly helpless, apart from the grace and the mercy of the God whom they've offended. Again, the, the offender at the mercy of the offended party. Well, <clears throat> we see the story unfold. We see, hopefully, how it, how begin to see how it relates to Israel then and even to us now. But let's look at it one more time and look at this in light, just very quickly, in light of this love of God and how this relates, even our relationship to that that which God. Well, as we consider this story of Hosea and we see the awful and the desperate situation of the people here that's portrayed in the life and the actions of Gomer, it all leads us really, I believe, the point here, this overarching point of the story is really these first three chapters of Hosea paint for us a picture of the loving faithfulness of God toward a wayward people. Excuse me. In all of this, we should really see not only the 
the sin and the unfaithfulness of Israel and their need for the grace and the mercy of God, but we should, we should see the implications for ourselves as well. You know, we should uh, take into account our own unfaithfulness, the, the desperate situation that we're in because of our sin and our need of the grace and the mercy of God, the God whom we've offended. And the Bible tells us, the scriptures tell us in Ephesians 2 in particular, that apart from Christ, that as we are in and of ourselves, that we're, we're dead in our sins, that we're following after the ways of the world and even Satan himself, that we are completely separated from God, that we have no hope in and of ourselves. In Romans 5, 6 through 11 there, Paul tells us that we are, we're enemies of God as we are in our sinful state. And it was then, you know, in this desperate situation that we were in because of our sin, it was then that he loved us, then that he sent his son to die for us and to redeem us from death and hell. Let's just talk, let's just revisit a couple points of the story to see how this shows us the sinfulness of the people, the sinfulness of ourselves, and this amazing and truly incomprehensible love of God. A couple points very briefly. Think for a moment. Let's consider the reality again that Hosea, being called by God to take to himself a wife who would be unfaithful, um, consider the reality again that Hosea, he knows his wife will be unfaithful from the beginning, and yet he takes her to himself. He obeys God. He answers the call, and he does as God would call him. Well, so also God, God who is the omniscient one, the one who knows all, the one who from eternity past, before the foundation of the world, knows the end from the beginning, knowing full well the sins of his people, even prior to creation, um, chooses to love these people, chooses to love a people as his own. You know, he was not surprised when God created the world and he formed the people and he set them in, in the garden there. And then when they fell, you know, God was not surprised. He didn't, it, it wasn't, ah, I, I really hoped they would have done it here. I really hoped they would have made it. God knew ahead of time. He knows the end from the beginning. He knew the sinfulness of his people, that they would fall short, but yet he chose to love them and set his love on them. In fact, we're told in the Old Testament there that God chose Israel not because of anything good or desirable in them, but out of his own sovereign and gracious love, he chose them. God sees the broken heart of man. He sets his love on them, and he redeems them to himself for their good and ultimately for his glory. God knows it all before. There was, a, um, there was an article I, I read a number of years ago by a, he's a pastor and actually a professor at, I don't know if he's uh, still teaching at um, the Master's Seminary, Eric Davis, but he wrote an article for the Master's Seminary on uh, a, a book, he was discussing a book by John Owen uh, called Communion with God, the old uh, Puritan there, and when I first read it, it, it took me, like I had to think about it for a moment, because the article, he said, it was titled, Why God Ordained the Fall, and he talked about God's sovereignty, and uh, well, we could open up a big can of worms with probably with that statement, but why he was talking about why God ordained the fall. And using Owen, using John Owen's work there, speaking on the work of redemption, that what Christ had done, Owen says this. This is what John Owen says on, in his book and what he was bringing to point. He says, 
Speaking on redemption, he says it was to recover things to such an estate as shall be exceedingly to the advantage of his glory, infinitely above what at first appeared, and for the putting of sinners into inconceivably a better condition than they were in before the entrance of sin. Um, I know we don't, maybe he, that's deep, let me, let me give my best to uh, just to unpack that a little bit really quickly, but what he says is when, when in this work of redemption that Christ accomplishes in the gospel, this was to recover things to such an estate that shall be exceedingly to the advantage of his glory, to uh, just to uh, make him, it's going to make him, him as well as his creation, it's going to make everything exceedingly more glorious than what it was at first, right? We might look to and think, oh, well, if sin had never come in, you know, everything would have been so much more glorious. But he says this was, this redemption that God accomplishes was to recover things to something that was to be exceedingly to the advantage of his glory above what it first appeared. And he says to, to put sinners into an inconceivably better condition than they were before the entrance of sin. And what he goes on to explain, I believe there, is that God, so God knows the people are going to sin. He chooses to love them anyway, placing his sovereign, gracious love upon them because God is... We can't take away from God's glory, but God, what he's trying to say, I believe, is that God is made so much more glorious in the, in the saving of people from sin through the death of his son than he ever would have been. God has made so much more glorious in the gospel as he saves a sinning, broken people for his glory and for their good. And he knows this ahead of time, and he does it. And then we see, of course, this just leads us, I think, to see, uh, as, as we go through the story there of, of Hosea and Gomer, what we see is this, in this redemption of Gomer, we see a beautiful picture of God's redeeming work in the gospel of Jesus Christ, this, incompreh- this, this incomprehensible love, something that it just doesn't make sense. How can this be true that God would love in such a way? Just as Gomer finds herself there in, in this desperate dependence upon the grace and mercy of her husband, the one whom she had offended. And just as Israel found themselves in such a situation because of their sin, so it is with all of us. You know, all of mankind, because of our sins, are in desperate need of God's grace and mercy toward us. You know, we categorize sins ourselves, don't we? At times we, we look at things, we say, well, that's a little sin, that's a big sin. Well, that one's really, really bad, but... But really what we have to understand is that every single sin is an offense that is worthy of eternal judgment in the face of an eternally holy and glorious God. He is the eternal God. He is the eternally holy and glorious God. And any, any sin, no matter how big, how small, is an offense that is worthy of eternal judgment as it is against him. And if there be any hope then, well, a price must be paid. So just as Hosea paid this price to redeem Gomer, right, in her desperate situation there, so also a price has to be paid to redeem sinners and reconcile them to God. You know, we, we look at the gospel and we have to be careful because I know we think, well, the salvation is free, and it is on our part. You know, the, the sin is covered, and, and we're freely by faith, you know, brought back into uh, we're reconciled to God, but the sin is still paid. There's still a price that was paid. It's just we don't pay it, right? 
the price that's paid to redeem the sinner is the life of the Son of God. And that's the heart of the gospel, isn't it? 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 21, Paul says that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. For, for our sake, he made him, he made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in, in him. And so just as Hosea, the offended party, goes and, and invests and pays a price to redeem the unfaithful wife and reconcile and restore the relationship, so God, in a greater way, pays the price of the death of his son to pay the price of our sin so that we might be reconciled and restored to him. Well, <clears throat> as we, uh, I'm, I'm going to close in a moment. I, I, I want to read, I think, in chapter 11 of Hosea, I'm just going to read it as we close in a moment. It really gives us, I think, a picture of the heart of God for his people. But I, I would like to just uh, at least offer a, a point or two. Um, you know, what can we, where do we go from here? What do we take from this kind of um, point of application, if you will? Um, you know, for, if, if we're a believer, if, if we belong to Christ, and we look at this, I think... Um, you know, for one, if there be any way, uh, for one, if there's any way that we fail, we ought to uh, repent, of course. We ought to turn back to the Lord, and we ought to uh, give every effort on our part, I suppose, to be those who show the mark of obedience in our, in our life. You know, in every, and when we fail, again, when we fail, when we fall, and we will, we repent and we turn back and we're restored. But, but that obedience should be a hallmark of our life. And, and truly, when we look at a story like this, when we look at an account of, of everything that takes place in there, you know, we should really truly be amazed by what God does on our behalf. We should really be amazed at how God loves us because we know ourselves, right? And we know, I know my sin. I, I know how far I've maybe fallen or what I've done, you know, and, and to look and say, wow, God, God loves me that much, you know, me, one who has failed him in so many ways. I think it should really cause us to glory in the gospel even more as we look at the love of God that's displayed here. For the unbeliever, if there's any unbeliever, if there's anybody here that doesn't believe or you find yourself listening to this by some chance, um, you know, you need to know, the unbeliever needs to know that, that you are in an adulterous relationship, Right now, because of your sins, because God, this, your creator, your maker, has created you for himself. We were created in the image of God. We were created for God. In fact, there's a, a quote by uh, Augustine, I believe. He says, you know, that, Lord, you've, you've created us for, well, I'll probably mess it up, but he says, Lord, you've, you've created us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You know, we're, we are created for God. And so when we are assuming that we can, if we are assuming that we can find meaning and fulfillment and pleasure and, and, and all of that in other things, well, then we are, we are in really deceiving ourselves because we were created for God to find those things in him. And for the unbeliever, you, I would say you need to really look at and consider and see, look at the great lengths that God has gone to at his own expense just like Hosea invests his own, he, he invests himself, God has gone to great lengths, if you will, at his own expense, the, the price of the death of his own son to make salvation available. And he's the offended party. You know, the offended party 
doing the work, paying the price to reconcile those who have made the offense. You know, it's really, um, it's really amazing here. There's an old quote by, I think it was Tim Keller, who talked about it a lot, or who brought this up quite a bit, was that the problem with the gospel is not that it offers too little. You know, it's not when we, when we speak of the gospel and we see what God has done to make salvation possible and all that he promises and in the coming glory that we will experience. It's not that it's too little. It's not that we would look at the gospel and think, oh, that's it? That's all there is? It, it, the problem is it's too much. You mean me, the one who has offended this God, that this God, the offended party, would give the life of his son to reconcile me to himself and promise me glory for eternity in his presence? It's, it's, it's perhaps, he says, it's, it's too much. It's too much. Well, let's close with this. Uh, Hosea chapter 11. I'm just going to read it and I won't say anything and we'll pray and we'll prepare for communion. But I really believe these first verses in chapter 11 of Hosea really just speak to the heart of God for his people. This is what it says there in chapter 11, verse 1. It says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them at all. But then he says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. All right, let's pray. Father, again, we thank you, Lord, so much uh, just for your word, Lord, for time to, again, to praise you and to pray to you and to look to your word. And, and Lord, I just pray that um, as we've looked and discussed this uh, portion of your scriptures, Lord, that you would take these things uh, that are true and that you would have us to, uh, that you would just have us to know and to learn and to be maybe reminded of, Lord, or or think of even for the first time, Lord, I pray that you would take these things and place them in our hearts, Lord. Um, as for me, Lord, I know I'm just a man, and uh, apart from your grace, have uh, no ability to to rightly teach and and um, and explain your word, Lord. So uh, we just pray that you, by your Spirit, would take your words and put them in our hearts as we've uh, talked about them and discussed them uh, this evening. And we'll give you the praise for it. We ask it in Jesus' name.